Today's episode of the Andy Staples Show is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. Thank you so much for listening. It is episode number 100 of the Andy Staples Show. Boy, that has flown by. As a thank you to you guys for listening and, and helping make this show what it is, we're going to answer your questions and we're going to answer it with a listener. Now, that listener happens to cover college football for the Associated Press. His name is Ralph Russo, but he is one of the most dedicated listeners of this show. I know because he texts me every time he's listening and argues with me about things I said hours and hours ago, and I have to remember, oh yeah, I said that on the podcast. But it's people like Ralph and folks like you guys who make this show what it is, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending your days with me, and I hope we can keep going for hundreds and hundreds more. Staple show and it's a dear andy live on tape but not really on tape because we don't use tape anymore dear andy digitally recorded we will come up with a name for this segment uh, actually i should ask our guest frequent listener ralph russo what should we call this thing yeah free yes frequent listener a long time listener um second time guest a frequent uh texter to you Again, I, yes, I, while while listening to the show, as if I am actually saying it live on the radio, yeah. but it's recorded, so it's it's coming to me like sometimes fifteen hours after I said it, I'm like, huh, what? I I, I realize the only difference between me and the rest of your readers who who badger you on Twitter is I have your cell phone number, and so I don't have to go on Twitter to call you a knucklehead or disagree with something you wrote. I can just text you. But really, Beautiful. that's the only difference. I'm just, I'm the same as the rest of them. Well, I mean, that's the thing. And, and I do appreciate it because Ralph keeps me so honest with this show. And I'm glad because I need to know when I'm messing up or when I'm getting over my skis. And, and that is the best way to do it. And so I, this, is, this is fantastic. And, and I'm sure, Ralph, it has been your dream to do a random ranking with me because you do chime in on those every single time. And also to answer some Dear Andy questions. And, and we've got a bunch. This was, this was one of those weeks where I opened the mailbag for, for the Dear Andy column. I'm like, oh, man, there's too much good stuff to get to. I'm going to have to do a podcast because I can't answer all of them in the written column. Yeah. Dear Digital Andy, maybe. Something along uh, those dear lines. Dear Digital Andy, I like it. Maybe, I like maybe it a lot. Some, we'll, we'll workshop it. Workshop yeah, it. Yeah, we will workshop it throughout the show. we got some meaty questions. I want to I start with the question from Jordan because this is – I feel like this is what's on everybody's mind, and it's, it's just a good question. Following up on the article that you published with Stuart Mandel on Tuesday, do you think that the divergent responses to the COVID-19 pandemic from individual universities and conferences will result in a long-term shift back toward regionalization in college athletics, such, a less, such as less geographically dispersed conferences or more non-conference games between in-state schools? And this is – I've gotten a version of this question quite a bit in the last couple of weeks, Ralph, because – you know, I think 
I feel like the fear is that the SEC is going to play and nobody else is going to play and that suddenly college football is going to be an only Southern sport. And I keep telling people, that's not what everybody in power is worrying about. They're not worrying about one conference going rogue and just playing ahead of everybody else. One, they couldn't do that because the other conferences would get together and change the NCAA rule regarding when the playing season is, and then it wouldn't be an issue. But the the issue to me, it seems like, Ralph, is more within conferences. You know, can you, are there going to be leagues where some schools can play and do play and other schools are not allowed because their government hasn't opened that state up as much and can't play? So so, so your listener um, has a good question. I think it, it's it's almost two different question right it's so, two pronged yeah yeah because because there's the there's what lies immediately ahead as far as the football season and the idea that teams might not start at the same time uh, that's been beaten a lot beaten to death a lot that topic over the last week or so we've all written about it in one way shape or form i think there seems to be sort of a moving target now for um the next question i think we have to start asking people is define an open campus right because the, the 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 phrase that's been coming up a lot is can't have you can't have college sports until you have college students and you can't have an open so campuses have to be open uh, to college students but I think now the definition of what an open campus looks like is uh, is a little up in the air quite quite negotiable and seems to be different depending on what you do I I heard Val Ackerman talking about it and she's the commissioner of the Big East and it's funny how when you don't make any money off of football because your schools don't have football teams. <laughs> You you think it's got to be wide open with with students in every classroom, and if you're a Power Five conference that makes lots of money off football, you're fine with online classes. That constitutes an open campus. Yeah, you know, Mark Emmer had a had a Twitter chat, so so to speak, the other day with Andy Katz, and I wrote a little something off it, as did a few other people, because um, really Emmer hasn't had as has Emmer hasn't been a major presence on the landscape here. Uh, really since the tournament was canceled. So it was interesting to hear him chime in. Remember, he doesn't have a whole lot of power. And when I say, when I, when I, when I say he doesn't have a whole lot of power, I mean he has none uh, when it comes to college football, especially major college football. However, I do think his opinion matters a little as far as the overall philosophical argument. And what he had said is, listen, there's there's uh, maybe three levels of what an open campus is or what back to school means. There's relatively normal. There, there's no such thing as normal anymore. Our, our world of normal, that's gone. But it, you could picture a situation where you have um, everybody attending class um, on campus but maybe there are fewer kids in the classes. Maybe they're having certain classes in shifts and things along those lines. Maybe they're having classes in the football stadium so they can socially yes. distance. Yes, yes. There, there's all that type of stuff. And then there's sort of a hybrid where a lot of things have been shifted online. Let's say some of those lectures where you'd have, you know, 50, 60, you know, listen, in big, I, I didn't 600. Go to, yeah. I didn't go to a really big school. So, so I, I did. And our biggest lecture hall was, was 600 people. Yeah. The most and I, I, think, I had several classes in it. Right. The most, I think I remember at Fordham would might've been like 50 to 50 to hundred, maybe I don't even think even a hundred is probably a bit much, but so maybe you shift away from those and some of those go online, but your labs, your things that like guys like you and I didn't take because we weren't smart enough. Um, 
like the, the things that require a little more face-to-face -face learning and well, yeah, hands-on and, and stuff. That's like our upper division fun. classes in our major, when I was in school, we might have only had 15 to 20 students in a class. So right. Right. in that kind of class, you would probably just find a bigger room for it than yeah, you would so, have now. So, so there's those, so maybe some go online and some are not. And then there's sort of the, the third level where pretty much everything is online. And I think that that's the area where it's really, and again, I understand like Bob Bowlesby brought it up and I think there's going to be more, you know, more commissioners and, and even presidents to a certain degree toying around with that idea, but it really becomes a little bit of you're sort of giving up the game, right? I mean, if you're a college administrator who's been right. banging on the table for years that they're just students and this is just their their chosen extracurricular activity. Then why do you need these particular students back so badly? Yes, that's that's and that's where Emmert's coming from too, because he he's been in federal court saying they're just students who happen to want to play these sports. It has nothing to do with anything else. How, well, we I, I all think, know that's not true. <laughs> I, I think I see. I think I see an escape hatch here, though, Andy. And even Emmert mentioned this the other. I don't know if he meant to 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 set this up as an escape hatch, but I I think I saw the escape hatch because they were they were talking about well, we really want to make sure the athletes have a great experience. And he was talking more about like even if it's a shortened season and even if some rules need to be bent is for, or, or not bent, but renegotiated or just tweaked uh, how many games you're supposed to play, how many home games you're supposed to play. So th those things are in the NCAA rule book. You have to play a certain amount of games, home games, season has to start on a certain schedule. You can tweak all those things because we want to make sure the athletes have a, have a, have a, a full and worthwhile experience. Well, and, and here's your other escape hatch if you're them. And, and you know I don't usually fall on their side, but here's, here's what they can say. They just want to play. The athletes exactly want to play. It. Yes. And, and yes. it's true because the soccer players who will not make any money, who will actually cost the athletic department money, want to play just as bad as the football players. And if given the opportunity, will happily come back to campus and play. Most of them. Now, there may be some who don't want to, who don't feel safe, or, or their parents don't feel safe sending them, and that's probably going to be everybody's choice, no matter what sport they play. But the fact of the matter is, football players, soccer players, volleyball players, they all just want to play. And if you give them the, the option to play, my guess is most of them are going to say, yep, I'm coming. Let's play. Right. And that, that's you nailed it. So that's the escape hatch. You can say, listen, uh, this is this is for their – this is – in their best interest because this is what they want to do. This is the fulfilling experience of college that they signed up for. So we are going to try to make some accommodations and they'll spin it as, listen, look at all the work we're doing to, 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 for the benefit of the student athletes. Now, of course, the problem there is, you know, these kids aren't getting paid and you've also set up, set up a relationship that is not, partnership like it is in pro leagues in college sports you have you have created a, a paternal relationship in college sports where at, whereby we do we know what's best for the student athletes and we we will try to protect them even from themselves right because that's part of the the argument against payments and part of the arguments against transfers and all those things is our arguments as like well we know what's best and we want to protect them from we hear that in the transfer well debate. i think i think dad could actually slide him a few bucks remember they've moved the goalposts on the concept of amateurism over and over and over again sure. so all they have to do is move them one more time and say, 
hey, this is an extraordinary situation. And every time we're going to give them all a stipend. But every every time you move it, the you know you get the lawyers and the antitrust lawyers' attention, and and that becomes problematic. And now you also have you know state lawmakers breathing down their necks. I, again, I, well, I, I that, that's the thing. The game's about to be up for them anyway. Yeah, and, my, and our next our next question is about that. But let's finish this one well, first. Well, let me hit one other thing because he had mentioned sort of this idea of regionalization. Right, and, and I wanted to get to that because there is a, another part of this that that you are exactly right about. So go, yeah, a little the bit of a, a little bit of a different prong there in that the regionalization piece is going to come from a lack of money, uh, most first then foremost. And I don't know. I, I know it will affect the Power Five, uh, and it will affect the smaller. But mostly, I think it's going to affect Olympic sports on the on the on the top line. I am interested to see how much that affects the Power Five. The Power Five are going to be insulated, maybe not in the in the short term. They're going to take a, a major hit in the short term, but in the long term, they're going to have a, a lot more ability to bounce back because these those TV contracts will kick back in, and there'll be lots of money flowing, and some of them will be some of them will be renegotiated soon or, 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 or up for negotiation soon. So there's going to be a whole, you know, just a, just a river of money flowing into those schools eventually. And in some ways the, the content at the power five level could even be more valuable in a world where even fewer people are interested in going to the games. But, but, but in, in what you're saying with the, the Olympic sports, in general, it's probably common sense, or should have been. Common it should have been a long time that, ago. That a team that doesn't make money should never be on a charter flight, like that, and and probably shouldn't have to fly to an event anyway. Probably shouldn't be going so far that they have to fly, it, and that that may be what you see is you may be seeing re- regionalization within sports. L- so let me, let me throw out one more word for you here to keep in, to, to to sort of store away federal uh federalization maybe uh, um, uh federations right instead Feder- of yes. ha- yeah yeah instead of having um conferences maybe you have a y- yeah you, you get together with your region or right. like a soccer federation yeah, exactly federations you have a like-minded school in your region that is also really into volleyball right like so maybe you don't necessarily need to be in the Big 12 for volleyball, but maybe, you know, uh, Kansas could be a good fit with just a bunch of Missouri and Kansas schools for a volleyball. Well, like Nebraska is a huge volleyball school. Precisely. And let's say the rest of the Big 10. And now I know Penn State is, too. But you could put Penn State with the, the schools, the Eastern Seaboard, put Nebraska, you know, let them go in with the West Coast schools. And I. I don't volleyball may actually make money at Nebraska. I have to look at the numbers on that, yeah. but it's a, it's a big deal there. And I think but, for the and I think for the G five conferences and lower than that, I think you'll see a lot of that. And, and I also think you might see some more um, Mountain West schools playing, you know, Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference schools. Yeah, D twos. But who cares? I mean, if, right. if, if the competition's pretty good and it's just golf or tennis, as long as the competitions are right, you don't have to get on a bus. Maybe Colorado State's better off playing. Uh, metro state in Denver than they are, you know, going all the way out to San Jose state. And, and especially meat sports. Yeah. Swimming track. Totally. Where you're going against a clock anyway, and you're trying to get a qualifying time for the NCAA tournament or the, for the NCAA meet, it, you don't need to be somewhere, you know, 3000 miles away. The clock can be wherever you are. Yeah. So that, that's the thing. I, I think that's what you're going to see, but not in football. Because in, in football, in the FBS, you're only talking about five or six road trips a year anyway, and those make money 
in almost every case. Even even for the athletic departments that lose money, the football game makes the money that makes them lose less. Yeah, agree, agree. So, all right, let's let's move on to the other one. This is this would be such a big deal, Ralph, if not for the other stuff that's going on. And it's so, so funny because we've talked about this for so many years and it's happening and it's completely overshadowed by something that is completely out of everybody's control. But this is Chris's question. Okay, so we've heard you, and he's talking about me, and Stuart Mandel and others like Nicole Auerbach going on for nearly a year about how awesome it's going to be that the best swimmer at State U is going to make $5,000 by becoming a micro-influencer on social media. And so can the national champion gymnast and the second-string left tackle. And we all know the Tua's and the Trevor's will have seven-figure annual deals easily, but you guys kind of skip over that. Chris doesn't pay much attention, but you'll see. And all that is fine and great for those kids, and nobody cares. In every one of these cases, the athlete that has established themselves has already committed to the school for now. You guys act like people are up in arms over any of that, and I can't find anyone who is. I can. But you, can, but you also will completely skip over the actual problem, recruiting. Swimming and gymnastics don't have multi-million dollar industries just around recruiting high school candidates that have never competed at the college level. There are no five-star golfers. Yeah, well, there, there are. are. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be easy for a major D1 SEC school's booster community to get 5 to $10 million a year in the pot to quote-unquote sign recruits who will sign their letter with the school to immediately receive six-figure deals for the, the five-star and four-star guys. How are they going to ensure that this won't further degrade recruiting for football or basketball? Will incoming freshmen not be eligible, or will they just let the most money win in the end because it's too hard to regulate? Chris, we haven't ignored that. In fact, that's all we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, It's that's- just that we don't care. That is the crux of it. And that, listen, that's so, so I, w- I was playing out. Andy allowed me, tipped me the questions here because he didn't want to catch me completely off guard. So I was thinking about, it's Chris. Chris is the one who wrote, wrote this in. Yes, Chris is, is one of those question askers, and we get them every once in a while, who think they are the first person to come up with something that everybody yeah. has been asking for years. But here, So here, let's play this out, and let's just say you're right. Let, let's just say Chris is right, and this is going to happen. I have some doubts because 18-year-old yeah. football, <laughs> football players are not terrific investments. And Terrible I think that, investments. Yeah, and I think that once a bunch of rich people like go down that road and realize that half of them end up in the portal and another third end up just not being See, that here's good. the thing, Ralph, the rich people aren't going to do that because they didn't get rich by being stupid. Right. But, 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 but let's just play this out for a second. Okay. All right. Because I think that, and let's say like, let's, let's say that this happens and there's no way for the NCAA to stop it. So they just simply throw, which I don't think hands. there is. I don't and think there is, but they're going to try. There could be, there could be some ways to reg well th- once you say regulation it's not a free market and that's re- where really where they are right now um but let's just say this this does happen so why is it only one school right if it because let's say let's say one school does this let's say he, out- he said major d1 sec school so all yeah, right why can't it be texas why can't it well, be oklahoma well why yeah can't but it be usc and, they and what he's saying he's saying it's also he's also saying it's Ole miss and South Carolina. So, but what I'm saying is, if this becomes something that's allowable, there's a lot of schools that would get into that market. And once you have schools, just like you have in free agency and professional sports, once you have bidding, 
that sort of ends up being, you know, creating a level of more of a level playing field. I mean, really, if we, if yeah, we, that's if we the market, turned, that's the market at work. If we truly did turn, like there is no competitive balance in college football because None. there is no market because there is no market for compensating players. That's why we have no competitive balance right now. Well, Ralph, let me, let me stop you there. This let me could st- create it. Yeah. Let me stop you there. School X that typically lands in the 30s every year in recruiting rankings mm-hmm. suddenly signs a top five class. What is the first thing everybody right. says? Right. The first thing. Right. Is they're cheating and they're paying the players. So if that were true, if that's exactly how a school that doesn't typically land in that part could land in that part, wouldn't that mean it would make it more competitively balanced? I mean, listen, n- n- I, this is an interesting example because, again, we, I think we talk a lot about the SEC schools. But let's talk about Nebraska for a, sen- for a second because Nebraska is a school that uh, the landscape shifted under Nebraska, right? Correct. And, and basically left an elite program as being a non-elite program. Not for any, uh, for, for simply because the, the demographics of the, the country world changed. changed. Yeah. yeah. The country changed and it, it, it hurt Nebraska football, which sucks for Nebraska football. But Nebraska still makes a ton of money. Like yeah, Nebraska the fans is, didn't stop caring. Nebraska is still one. Well, at least they were until recently. I'm not sure if they are, was was still one of the few athletic departments that was giving money back to the university. So in this model, Nebraska could be a player again. Right. Just as you said, Nebraska volleyball makes, I think, a little bit of money. Like, like Nebraska makes a, a, the, the, one of the things that frustrates Nebraska fans and people at Nebraska is that like, they are one of the well, you know, well-heeled uh, uh, athletic departments and they still have been sort of left behind. So if it, if it does become just a matter of spending in many ways, now, again, I don't think it will get to that, but I, I think if you want to play out Chris's example here, it might bring actually some more parity. Right. SMU can get back into it. We know they're good at this. <laughs> we know they have that skill in their toolbox. And they've and, got oil people, though that's not necessarily a big uh, help bad right example now. now. Yeah, right but, now it's not a good deal. But, you know, uh, eventually cyclical. we will need oil again. <laughs> right. People will start uh, driving again. And we t- will need TC, TCU has been in that boat too. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are schools where you can very easily say if this was something they were allowed to do, they would get more competitive, not it. less competitive. And you well, know, the, the other part of it too, Andy, is you know, again, if I'm a five star, like there's only so many. Like right now, the big problem in recruiting, which translates into the non, the uh, the the lack of uh, um, parity in college football, is I mean, you just open up the two, four, seven rankings. Like all the fives and fours are clustering at the same schools. Correct. I would I would say that if you could if if I'm Alabama and I could only afford like listen even if you have some well-heeled boosters they're not go- you're not going to have a hundred million dollar payroll so if I'm a five star and Alabama is sort of you know now all of a sudden is only offering me two hundred grand but you know to use Ole Miss is now offering me five hundred because they prioritize me then maybe instead of Alabama getting seven five stars or Georgia getting five or, or Tennessee just getting all the commits, because that seems to be a thing that's happening these days. 
you know, again, maybe if, if, if the money, if there's only so much money to go around because, you know, at a certain point there's going to be not a cap, but there's going to be the, 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 the well is not the, bottomless. The market itself will say, yes, you know, this doesn't grow on trees. Right. At a certain point, the market will determine where people will go because they will look at other opportunities and say, oh, hey, I can get a little more from this school because this school is prioritizing me. Yes, that school can still afford five, five stars, but if I go to that school, I would make less as a five-star than I would if another school. So again, I don't think what Chris, Chris is laying out will happen, but if it did happen, I think it would sort itself out because that's the way yeah. it usually I also don't works. think it's bad because why do you care if these, those people make money? Like, why is that bad? Yeah. And we, again, to, we already have, have no parity. Right. I mean, people have to disabuse themselves of this notion that somebody getting paid to be good at sports is bad. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. Somebody getting paid to murder people is bad. Somebody being paid to be good at football isn't bad. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. Well and, established. Yes. <laughs> well, and, and the thing is, okay, the 5 to $10 million slush fund, or uh, well, I guess it wouldn't be a crazy. slush fund. Yeah. So imagine, Ralph, how hilarious this would be if, if this actually happened and the school had a coach who was a bad evaluator. Yeah, that's what I'm who saying. Just, who like, just took the four stars who actually weren't that good. It would be hilarious because those boosters would quit giving money for that overnight. Right. Because you can say, oh, I'm going to, you know, you'll, you'll get a 200,000 because I was doing the math before. So just very quick math, right? Like if it, let's say it's a $5 million fund, yeah. 25 guys, that's 200, 200 grand a piece, which again, so, and, and the job you're going to do to earn that 200 grand, because it's going to have to be tied to some kind of marketing deal is uh, you're going to have to post like three things on your Instagram page. You have to make three Instagram posts, uh, posts promoting some kind of local business. And that'll be it. And you'll get $200,000 for that. So now what the NCAA is trying to do is say like, well, we're going to regulate that and make sure it's market value, blah, 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 blah. But again, my, my point being that, you know, again, if I have the two, like the, the first time I'm the guy who put up the 200 grand and that kid ends up in the portal the next year, I, like that's I'm not it. putting that's any more money up. Time I'm doing that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's the thing. 17 year olds are not a great investment. Mm -hmm. And I think most people know that. And so the numbers you'd see to try to convince people to sign, and look, it will happen whether the NCAA wants it to happen or not, it's going to happen. Yes. But the numbers that will actually change hands to get somebody to sign are going to be way lower than people think they are. Because mm -hmm. it's just not, it's not a good investment. You're, you're better off investing in donating to the athletic department to hire a good coach. Right. That, you're right. better off that way. Right. So- but it, it's just funny because people, uh, you know, and, and there are a lot of people like Chris who think nobody's ever thought of this before. Yeah. No, everybody's thought of it. Think of it's it, just that think, yeah, nobody think cares. Of it, think of it from this perspective, Andy. If I give 200 grand to one recruit or should I give a million to build a slot to build a football facility, which basically is a million for all the recruits. Right. Right. That, that, right. That's, go and, that's essentially going to. And the question, the, the question is, how good is the player? That's ultimately mm -hmm. the question you'll ask. You want, you want to give a lot of money to the sure thing. There are very few sure things. Right. right. And this is a di little different conversation to a certain degree in basketball where you can sort of spot the sure things at 16, mm -hmm. 17. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot touchier in football where there are very few Jadavian Clownies, Adrian Petersons, and Trevor Lawrences. Right. It, I mean, you can go look. And, and yes, most five stars do wind up being at least starters 
but do they wind up all being the impact player? I think 33% of them wind up getting getting drafted. Mm-hmm. Or, or no, it was 33% of the first round was five stars. So you have a better chance of being a five star, of being a first rounder if you're a five star, but you're still not guaranteed to be a success. Mm-hmm. And that's why it would be really hard to put a lot of money up front on you. It's the same as the NFL draft. It's, it's the same reason that the NFL owners – in that CBA, after Sam Bradford got $110 billion as a rookie, and the players all agreed, hey, let's not, let's not go crazy paying these rookies because we don't know if they're going to be any good. So let's institute a, a rookie wage scale. Mm-hmm. So that, that's why that they had to be saved from themselves. I think the market would actually save boosters from themselves pretty quickly because they'd realize this is not a very – stable market but again if it didn't i do think it would provide more opportunities for more schools as opposed to less opportunities as opposed to the other way around and and this is what i always when people make that point oh the the gap between the haves and the have-nots will get even bigger i'm like okay so who would bowling green get now (laughs) if ohio state wanted them like bowling green will never get a player ohio state wants you can make any set of rules you want or just indiana Frankly, yeah. I mean, that's right. The there there will never be a scenario where they get a player Ohio State wants. Indiana has beaten Ohio State, I believe, once in the last 50 years. So really, what are we really talking about here as far as competitive balance? Exactly. All right. Let's, this is more of an on-field question, Ralph, from Daniel. And I, this is an interesting one because mm-hmm. this was a big topic of conversation at the beginning of last season. How do teams determine who will be the interim coach when the head coach gets fired? Do ADs have someone on staff in mind year-round? Does the planned interim coach know he'd become the interim coach in case the head coach gets fired? So, really interesting question, especially now that we've seen a couple of interim coaches become full-time head coaches and become great full-time head coaches. And I'm talking about Dabo Sweeney and Ed Orgeron, of course. Yeah, I, I think it's what do you so in, in trying to you know think back to some conversations I've had with ADs on this. I think it's sort of uh, what am I trying to accomplish with this interim coach? Do I have a guy who uh, I'm going into a season? I'm not really thrilled with the guy I have. I'm hoping I won't have to fire him at all. I'm really hoping I'm not going to have to fire him during the season. They the ADs all have a plan of just in case, yeah, listen, forget fire, right? What if my guy gets sick? What if my, my head coach, you know, just gets suspended for some reason? So they're always going to have sort of like, okay, the next in command, um, the guy I, I, I feel comfortable getting us through the short term is going to be so-and-so because he's been around the program the longest. It might not be the offensive coordinator, the defensive coordinator. It might be the special teams coach or somebody else who may be a position coach just because they've been around the program a long time. They know how to sort of operate things. And that might be like the one list of who's my short-term answer. Then there's sort of the Ryan Day situation, right? Urban gets suspended. Gene Smith sort of thinks of Ryan Day as like, I may already have my next guy. Like I, this, I, I think I have my next guy. So why don't I give him a try, a, a, a tryout here? So I think there's also a little of that. Like when, when Dabo got promoted, I think, you know, again, t- Terry Don Phillips, he thought that Dabo could be the next guy. So he wasn't just looking to get through the season, right. get through a bad season. He was saying, I think I got a guy and I want to try him out. 
And Terry so, Dunn told Dabo on the day he made him the interim, regardless of what happens, you will get an interview for the full-time job. Yeah. And now they had a former head coach on the staff. Vic Caning, their, their defensive coordinator at the time, had been Wyoming's head coach for three years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It had not gone well, but he had head coaching experience. But Terry Don Phillips and Tommy Bowden, by the way, Tommy Bowden also suggested Dabo mm-hmm. as the interim. This was an interesting conversation before last season, Ralph, because I remember talking to a bunch of people about the USC job, and if USC had decided to fire Clay Helton, who was the interim on that staff? Right. Was it Graham Harrell? Because you thought maybe I maybe he is my next head coach and I want to try him out? Or am I going to, again, just try to find somebody who's going to get me through this season? who is an experienced guy on this staff who I feel like will not run us into the ground, who the players respect. And that was, so, that was Ed Orgeron right. initially. That was when, when LSU, well, actually when USC went to Ed Orgeron after they fired Leighton Kiffin, but also when LSU did it, it was, here's a guy who's been a head coach before, and especially with LSU, here's a guy who's been an interim head coach and done a good job at it, and the players love him, and let's put him in there and see what happens. I don't know how serious they were about giving him a shot to get the full-time job on the day they fired Les Miles, but I think pretty quickly they realized, okay, we need to give him a chance. So here's another factor. So, and I've, I've talked to an AD about this. So let's say you're firing a guy mid-season because the program is just, it's in the ditch, right? So now I have to decide who's going to get me through the rest of the year. I probably didn't want to do this, but who's going to get me through the rest of the year? Uh, sometimes you don't want the most experienced guy because maybe the experienced guys on that staff, and that, I mean experience within the staff, the guys who have been around the coach a lo- long time, maybe they're part of the problem. Yeah, you want to shake it up a little bit. Yeah, so you may look toward, okay, who's, again, This I, I'm not saying that Graham Parrell was necessarily looked like this or or what the possibilities were. I'm not, I, don't, I'm gonna, I don't want to project on USC, but Harold would have been a, an example of, listen, I want to go outside of what we're, we're doing. And I know a particular staff, I don't want to reveal it, that the member talking to the AD and he was like, listen, I don't want any of the guys doing this who have been here a few years because they're, they're all part of the problem. So let me see if I can find somebody who came in in the last year. And really, that was at Orgeron to a certain degree. Yeah, not, he'd been there a year and, and two months. Yeah, not necessarily because the, the Les's staff was toxic or anything like that, but I think that they looked at Les's staff as, again, part of the less staleness, right? And Ed was relatively new, and they thought, again, he could, he could guide us in there, but he's also not part of the old guard. So there's a little of that, too. So I think that ADs will identify, okay, the thing is in the ditch here, um, I want, I need somebody the kids can relate to. I need somebody who can sort of salvage this season, but the guys who have been here a while who may know the way things operate well, again, they're part of the problem. So let me try one of the newer guys. And, and again, if you've had a bad season, most likely your head coach has been trying some new guys, right? If he walks into the season on the hot seat. So I might try one of those guys. So it's, it's different circumstances. Do I want to try out a guy who I think could be my guy long-term? Do I just want a caretaker to make the best of a bad situation? Uh, and, and sometimes is that caretaker someone who is relatively new, but because they haven't been sort of stained by the problems, I have a better chance of making good on that person. And maybe also, and you, and you but, may have an idea at the beginning yeah. of the year, and that could change as the season goes along. Also, if it's a midseason firing, you may want to get the player's favorite guy. That too. That just too. to keep 
keep from having a mutiny because if they like the head coach that you're firing, there's a better chance that everything stays calm if you put their favorite person in charge. If the, if you put the person they like even better. And now this isn't a exactly a perfect example of that because when Ron Zook got fired at Florida, Zook actually finished out the season. Mm-hmm. Remember he he won the game at Florida State when they were christening it Bobby Bowden Field, so now it's called Ron Zook Field. Um, <laughs> but he he then went and took you know he was up for Ole Miss in Illinois. He takes the Illinois job, so Charlie Strong takes over Florida for the bowl game. Well, Charlie Strong was was the one who, if they decided to fire Zook immediately and and he left immediately. Charlie would have been the interim coach because he's the one who could keep the locker room together. You want to and, avoid and keep the recruiting class together. Yeah, you want to avoid a mutiny. You want to try to help the keep, keep the recruiting class together. You, there's also another thing, not just a mutiny. You also want to make sure that like every all the players don't just sort of. I mean, this is part of being a mutiny, but that they don't just sort of check out and check become, out, yeah, and become really bad disciplinary problems too. Because that's another that's a real fear too. When you have, I, I know that's a huge fear. I've talked to a couple of ads on like why they they really try to avoid the, the in season firing because they uh, they they worry that their players and not not just mutiny as far as like not giving effort, but become real severe disciplinary problems. Uh, because they just don't feel like there's any consequences, right? So how can you set up a, an interim there where the players will respect them and not just become – and again, maybe it's a situation where there's already some disciplinary problems yeah. and that makes so, the thing even so more – So generally, if you're trying to play guess the interim, if you've if you got a, coach who's in, a head coach who's in trouble, look for head coaching experience on the mm-hmm. staff. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a somewhat of a giveaway, but not always. Look for the best recruiter. That would be Ed Orgeron, Dabo Sweeney because they're usually the most beloved by the players and look for the hot coordinator. That's the other kind of Ryan day chosen when urban Meyer was suspended. If something had happened to Bob Stoops while Lincoln Riley was offensive coordinator, I think Lincoln Riley would have been elevated to that position because Joe Castiglione realized, I think before they even coached a game together, that Lincoln Riley was a potential successor to Bob Stoops. So uh, I think that comes across pretty clearly when it's a Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley type person or a Dabo Sweeney type person. Hmm. Because that's, again, the AD who was firing Tommy Bowden and Tommy Bowden himself said, hey, Dabo should be the guy. So that, that tells you something. But that, that's a great question from Daniel. I, I like that one a lot. Now we have our random ranking, Ralph. And this is a good one. I, I'm curious to see how much our team allegiances at the time affect this. But... Favorite 80s and 90s baseball players. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We're suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, Magnesium and zinc all help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors and no artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code STAPLES at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code STAPLES for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com, enter promo code STAPLES. 
this was a point in time. So probably Ralph from '85 to about '94, I watched baseball pretty much every day. It was on. I, I was a Cubs fan, so I'd watch the Cubs on WGN. Uh, we lived in the Keys when I was a kid, a little kid, and so obviously no team there. The Marlins hadn't come to Miami yet. And we had TBS and we had WGN and and I actually turned on a Cubs Braves game one day and it was the WGN broadcast and Jody Davis hit a grand slam in the first at bat I saw and I decided I was a Cubs fan. So that that's how that worked. So I, I tried to make mine not all Cubs. We'll see if yours is not all Mets, but we're going to go from number five to number one. Top 80s and 90s baseball players. Who is your number five, Ralph? Okay. Again, so my, and I want to say this was sort of inspired by it would have been Tony Gwynn's 60th birthday this weekend. Um, so I thought of this as, again, one of the great 80s, 90s, one of the great players of all time, but certainly oh, 80s, fantastic. 90s. So I thought of this as like, okay, who would have been Tony Gwynn's contemporaries, 82 to 2001? All right. Just, just to give you a little, a little, uh, perspective on how I made my list. So number five for me, so of course this is going to be somewhat Mets heavy, is Dwight Good. That's a good I, one. Yeah, I, I, was four, I was 14 years old when he made his major league debut at 19. I, here's the one cool thing about Dwight Gooden. The older I get, the more amazing it is what he did. I'm 50 now. He was 19 because when he's 19 and you're 14, I don't think you grasp the fact that 19 is like a still a kid. Like at, at 14, 19 seems like an adult. So as you get older and think back, my God, 19, 19 year olds are kids. And he was dominating major league hitters at 19 years old. So the Cubs were in the NL East with the Mets at this time. So mm. I hated the Mets. So yeah. Doc Good, Daryl Strawberry, yeah. Kevin McReynolds, Howard Johnson could not stand them. Uh, so you'll see no Mets on this list. But number five for me is was probably on everybody's list, Nolan Ryan. And him noogieing Robin Ventura is one of my favorite sports memories. Back, that was back in the day when you'd watch Sports Center five times a day. You just it would you know you'd it'd be on when you got up, and you just watch it from six a.m. to eleven a.m. And so you'd watch it every time to see Nolan Ryan give Robin Ventura a noogie again. Because that's how you found out what happened, Andy. <laughs> because you didn't actually know what happened until you watched SportsCenter. SportsCenter highlights were crafted in a way that it built suspense. They were crafted in a way that assumed that you didn't know the winner until we flashed the score, the early days of SportsCenter. So how about living in that world? Well, I just remember it's funny because when CNNSI started, it, they made a conscious decision to act as if everybody already knew the result when they did the highlight. And it bothered me because they'd say who won and then they go into the highlight. And I'm like, Vanner Wright, stop telling me this. You're killing the suspense. So, all right, number uh, number four for me. Wait, did you do your number four? I didn't do my four. I can do, oh. I'll do four. I'll do four. Oh, okay, you do your number four. So my number four it didn't play in the 90, in the 80s. He started his career in 1990. And I, I was thinking about a, a excluding him simply because of that. But he is my last favorite player. This is the last like sort of player that I was young enough to love in sort of an irrational way. So when you become an adult, you, you sort of have a different relationship with that type of stuff. Frank Thomas, the big hurt. Oh, yeah. From the White Sox walked all the time, hit 330, and he was a football player. 
Like that was the other thing that really Auburn tied in. That's yes. right. That was the I, other thing that I loved about Frank Thomas, that he was huge and he played football. So even though I love baseball and I love football, the fact that Frank Thomas was a football player and was an awesome baseball player, uh, he makes my list. He was an honorable mention on mine. Another honorable mention on mine, because I haven't mentioned a Cub yet, Sean Dunstan. He could throw 92 f- throwing from shortstop to first base. Brooklyn's own Sean Dunstan. Tremendous. I love yeah. Sean Dunstan so much. All right, number four for me, Ken Griffey Jr., sweetest swing. I loved how it made people so mad that he wore his hat backward. <laughs> <laughs> it was great, but it just it was beautiful to watch him swing a bat. And I, Ralph, I don't know, because you, you're – a little older than me, so I don't know if you were into baseball cards at the time, but Ken Griffey Jr. was upper deck, 89 upper deck number one. So upper deck's first set that they made, his was the first card. It's him, you know, with the hat kind of, it was kind of up on his head. He's got the bat on his shoulder. I just, it's it's one of the most beautiful baseball cards you'll ever see, and just perfect that they chose him right as he was taking off. So I was out of the baseball card game by that point. And Griffey Jr. certainly could have made my list. Uh, but number three is sort of, he was like sort of my version of Griffey, though unfortunately he didn't become that. I think there, were, there was a lot of hype around him to become that. And he had the most beautiful left-handed swing. And of course he's a Met. And it was Daryl Strawberry. And really I could have had Strawberry at number one, but I kind of wanted to balance a little bit here on greatness too. Uh, and, and listen, his career didn't go as well as I think a lot of Met fans expected. He was, he was the black Ted Williams. That's what he, he was described as the next Ted Williams or the black Ted Williams. He had a beautiful swing. He could do everything. He could run and throw. Uh, and he had a couple of years where he very well could have won an MVP. Again, it petered out like much like Gooden. And that's that, and that sadness is probably the reason why I don't have him a little higher. But man, he was also, and he and Gooden also represented the turnaround for the Mets. So I started rooting for the Mets in 1977, and they were awful. And they were really awful until 83 when Strawberry came up. So not only, like, they had Hernandez and Gary Carter, but those were imports. Strawberry was our guy, and Gooden was a, was a, was a homegrown guy. Yeah, he so, didn't start with the Expos like Gary Carter did. Exactly. And I, as much as I love those players, the, these were the homegrown guys and strawberry. So I have number stra- strawberries number. I even like, so I, I batted right-handed, but I would like leg kick a little bit when I swung <laughs> and I like strawberry t- kind of tilted the bat a little bit toward the pitcher. So Righties I used to try could to never that. reproduce a pretty left-handed swing. Totally impossible. And also, by the way, just so you know, like when you tilt the bat toward the pitcher, it really slows your swing down. So you have to be unbelievably strong to tilt your bat like that that and still hit so um, i had a few coaches like explain that to me right quick (laughs) (laughs) all right so number three for me another football baseball combo but the ultimate football baseball combo bo jackson and if bo doesn't get hurt playing football i think we are looking at his baseball career entirely differently as well because i remember the all-star game how far he hit that ball (laughs) I mean, it was insane. And then, and then when he would, you know, during the season when he would track up the center field wall, yes, like Spider Man, yes, to did. catch the ball. And have you ever tried to break a wooden bat over your thigh? <laughs> it hurts, and it feels pretty impossible. But he did it repeatedly. How many, how many people in our age group, our general age group, hurt themselves severely trying to do that after we saw Bo Jackson do it? Oh, I had so thinking many like, oh, I could totally my, do that on my thigh because I was like. 
it, he makes it look so easy. And I actually have, I have one of those bats now from that era with the really thin handle. It's it's a Dale Murphy signature bat, and I'm I'm shocked he's not on my list. And he's mm. probably not on yours. And there's a bunch of Southerners that are going to be really mad that we didn't <laughs> have Dale Murphy on either of our lists. Sorry, guys, but uh, the this bat would be the easiest to snap, you'd think, because it has the thin handle at the bottom. Uh, uh-uh, no, it, there's no like even at my strongest, there's no way I could have ever done that. All right, so we're at number two. Yes, number two, I'm going outside New York. Number two, I'm going, and unfortunately, his, like, just like Tony Gwynn, here's another uh, player who passed away way before his time, Kirby Puckett. Kirby Puckett, first of all, was named Kirby Puckett. So when he first came up, knowing that there was a baseball player named Kirby Puckett, which is such a fun name, it's such a fun name to say, that that alone drew me to him. And then it turned out he was a great baseball player. And he was short and roly-poly, but he could run and he could jump and he had a great arm and he hit 300. And he became like this just stupendous player with this great name. And he always looked like he was having just a ball on the field. And I, I just, yeah, I, I, became, like, I have no interest in the twins, but Kirby Puckett became the player when I had my Stratomatic Leagues. I always made sure I tried to have Kirby Puckett on my team. He was such a great player to watch and such a fun, just, there was just, he just exuded fun. Yeah, I think it was the, the what happened after his career that, because I, I thought about putting him on there and it's just like, ah, I don't know about that. You know, you're absolutely right. There, the, the, after we found out a little bit more about him and there were some un, really unsettling things about him and you sort of got that, that experience as you would do when you were an adult, right? When you become an adult, yeah. and you sort of realize, wow, my heroes, uh, you know, I, I, at 18, Kirby Puckett was one thing and at 27, 28, it was a different thing. But I could still look back and really appreciate oh, yeah. the fact that he gave me a lot of joy when I was like 16, 17 years old. It was, it was just an incredible fun, career. A, a Couple great World player Series titles. Yeah. Yep. All right. We are now into the Chicago Cubs portion of my <laughs> list. Okay. Now, this guy started as a Cub. Uh, had really good years as a Cub, but his best years were as a Brave. Greg Maddox. Oh, yeah. Dude never threw over 88 miles an hour, but he could put the ball wherever it needed to be and just befuddled hitters for years and look like he was your you know third grade math teacher but would just destroy you on the mound yeah he pained me i had a lot of between his cubs and his mets and his braves 10 years they, he spent a lot of time torturing my team <laughs> yeah it's just it, it's funny because i i always like the power pitchers like nolan or, or roger clemens but Maddox was so much fun to watch. I, I remember I, the only time I got to see him pitch in person, I went to Fulton County Stadium. He was still with the Cubs. It was last year with the Cubs. They're playing the Braves. Smoltz is pitching for the Braves. And Smoltz throws you know, gas. He's just throwing fire. And Maddox just threw a beautiful game. I think the Cubs won like 8 to nothing. I think, I think Mark Grace, Ryan Sandberg, and Andre Dawson hit home runs that day. Cal Daniels hit a grand slam. I remember that. Cal Daniels, nice. Uh, there was a time I could name every lineup of every team in, in, in Major League Baseball. I could <laughs> name the starting lineup of just so, about every so who, team. So who tops your list, Ralph? So the, the guy who tops my list is an interesting player only because he played for the team I hate most of all, and that's the Yankees. But he was never really a true Yankee. I don't think even Yankee fans really appreciated how great Ricky Henderson was. Oh, yeah. Um, well, he's, I think of him – it's weird because I think a lot of people just think of him as an Oakland A because that's what he was – 
that's where he was when he broke the stolen base record. And, and he mo- most of his greatest years were with the A's, but he was just such an amazing player. And so, you know, power and speed and stolen bases. And I did like the fact that he was like kind of weird and like totally self-centered oh, in, that, nuts. in that kind of like, but like in a, the oblivious way that he was like totally like very arrogant, but not necessarily like, understanding that he was that way like and and again and it was also the package of skills he was just he is truly one of the all-time you know you could probably make a a case that he's one of the top 20 players of all time different personalities but you know who i think would have been a player like ricky henderson would have had a similar skill set is kyler murray yeah yeah i think so yes that that kind of speed power combination um, and again, you know, Ricky was walking before it was really like, you know, really hip to walk. Um, he was one of those, and again, I'm a sort of a sabermetrics guy. That Early was, sabermetrics adopter, Ricky Henderson. Yeah. And so like, yeah, 1986, I became like really into Bill James and I realized, oh my God, wait a second, Ricky Henderson, he's the best player in baseball. Um, so, wait, Ralph. So you're saying if you get on base more, better yeah. things happen for your team. Is that what uh, you're trying to tell me? Amazing. Who knew? Um, yeah, I always like to razz my Yankee fan friends that like Don Mattingly has an MVP because Ricky Henderson batted in front of him. <laughs> like, Don right, they, had, they had to throw runs. to Don because there was already somebody on base and he, exactly. he, he might steal second, third and home. So. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, right. Ricky is my guy. Number one combination of I really enjoyed his game. And also he's just so damn great. So number one, and yes, I wore number 23. Because of a player from Chicago, of course, but not the one you're thinking of, not mm-hmm. not Michael Jordan. Because of Ryan Sandberg, of course, Ryan Sandberg was my favorite player. Uh, I played second base in little league because of Ryan Sandberg, even though I was fat. And my coaches would be like, "You shouldn't be a second baseman." I'm like, "No, no, no, Ryan will play second base. I'm playing second base." <laughs> and then and then I would I would stop every ball they'd hit at me, and they'd be like, "Okay, I guess you can play second base." You know, the funny thing is I was thinking about Sandberg on my, I, I like Sandberg a lot too. And I almost put, I was even considering him for a second on my list, but I realized again, like he just tortured my team too often oh, for me dear. to actually yes. embrace him like that. Yeah. And, and just, you know, seems like a decent enough guy, uh, has kind of been through the circuit as a potential manager, always his name's popped up, but he hasn't quite broken through yet. Uh, but yeah, he was, he was a power hitting second baseman. You didn't see many of those. And uh, and just seemed to be always had it together, calm, cool, collected. So yeah, he was my favorite. Uh, one uh, another honorable mention because you mentioned Ricky Henderson. I realize we're woefully short on Oakland A's on these lists, even though they were dominant. In You're putting Seiko on there? No, Eckersley, Dennis Eckersley. Um, okay. Sidearm, unhittable. When he came in, the game was over. Before, I mean, this is. Lee Smith had sort of revolutionized the position and, and created. Oh, the, Bruce the Suter even before that. Yeah. We were too young yeah. for that, though. Exactly. So Eckersley, the save is a thing. The, the closer is a thing by the time Eckersley moves to the bullpen. But he made it where there had never been a guy where it was lights out. And so before Mariano Rivera just elevated that even more, Eckersley was doing it for the A's. Yeah, yeah, Eckersley is a good pick, and Maddox was definitely a thought there. If you want to go deeper into the 90s, I love Pedro. Pedro Martinez was just – As an expo. As an expo and a Red Sox, but yeah, as an expo was was tremendous. And uh, Larry Walker was another guy. I liked a lot of guys on there. There were so many good expos right around the end, and obviously it was a case where the franchise didn't have that much money. Every time somebody got good, they couldn't re-sign them, and they'd they'd go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. 
But, I mean, they, they had so much talent on some of those teams wearing hideous uniforms, playing in that ugly ballpark. But every time I think of the Expos, I think of... Arky C and Fracco started there, right? He went to the Rockies later. <laughs> I think so, yes. I think, I think of Harry Carey trying to say, Arky C and Fracco. <laughs> now batting, Arky C and Fracco. <laughs> just, I love, love that name. Love it. The Lino de Shields. Those were the days. Those were the days. Baseball was the national pet pastime. And uh, for me, the, I know your love of baseball, I think, has has waned a little bit. Mine Withered and died, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I still am very much a baseball fan. It, it's, it's the thing I, I, I really enjoy in a way that I even can enjoy football because football, to a certain degree, is always going to be a little bit of work. Um, but I'll never love it the way I loved it back in those days. And, of course, honorable mention to Tony Gwynn, who – just the, the the stats never they're just they're so amazing they're just so amazing all the crazy 3000 hits struck out less than 300 times and all the crazy stats with with Tony Gwynn and uh and how but again i, I couldn't embrace him that much cuz too often he was torturing he my kill team. the mets exactly he was torturing my team ralph russo thank you so much for joining us thanks andy anytime That's it for the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you are interested in Major League Baseball right now, you need to be reading Ken Rosenthal on the plans to get Major League Baseball back up and running. And you can only do that at The Athletic. Hopefully you're subscribing to The Athletic so you can read the stuff I write and the stuff Stuart Mandel writes and Bruce Feldman and Nicole Auerbach and Matt Fortuna and Max Olson and all our friends that you hear on this podcast regularly. But you also get great coverage of all the other sports, and Ken is just killing it on baseball right now. Uh, they are trying very hard to get that game back up and running, and he is going to give you the latest news as it happens. So by all means, you want to read about that. College football fans, the folks who are coming to this podcast to hear what I'm talking about, we've got our State of the Program series running right now. That is an in-depth look under the hood at every major college football program. They're as... It's basically your preseason magazine, except on your app. It's great. We hit everyone. It's a real in-depth look. You will be a much more educated fan, even about the teams that you don't root for, because I guarantee you, you'll start reading them, because you'll get the juices flowing, getting ready for college football. We don't know exactly when it's coming back, but it does feel like the tea leaves are, are reading that it will be back maybe sooner rather than later. And so you got Clemson. You got South Carolina, those have already run. So if you're on either side of that rivalry, you can read that. But you're just going to be reading about all of them because you're like, hmm, I wonder what's up with USF this year. Hmm, I wonder what's up with Baylor this year. Dave Aranda's the coach there now. Hmm, I wonder what's up with Cal this year. I think they found a quarterback at the end of last year. It's a great series. Got to be a subscriber to The Athletic to read it. So if you want to, theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. Get 40% off your first year theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. 